there are a few screens on this that uh, need to be fixed that are at the end that I haven't uh, done so yet, but uh, hopefully that'll, we can get past that. Uh, Jerry, I think you have the headphones. Jerry, headphones. Good. Uh, and the, the issue that is common to many of us is the King James only uh, controversy. I'm sure that everybody at some point has had some interaction with those who are King James only uh, people. And uh, so we want to just briefly look at that uh, this morning. We'll just briefly look at that. So let's start uh, in this way. Stop me at any point if you, you want, and uh, I'll do my best to answer your questions uh, if you have any. First of all, what is King James onlyism? What is it? It's a position that firmly, even militantly, believes that the K- KJV 1611 translation taken from the TR, the Textus Receptus, is the only true representation of God's word. So that's in a nutshell, what King James-only uh, churches believe, the formula for those in this camp who would hold to that is that the KJV equals the Word of God. And, therefore, the KJV alone equals the Word of God alone. Any and all other translations are perversions of Scripture in their mind. So we have the English version, of, or the, the King James is the only uh, right English version that we should be using as, and in fact, we'll, we'll actually look at this a bit later, but that the English translation of the King James Bible trumps even the Greek manuscripts. So if there were a conflict between the King James Bible, 1611, uh, with the Greek manuscripts that we have, the Greek manuscripts would be corrected by the King James version. And many problems with that that we'll look at some of them in just a bit, but uh, Nonetheless, that's uh, where they come from. And so there are no doubt uh, some and many sincere believers who hold to this, and that's what they've been taught. And many who uh, we would say are not demonstrating the reality of uh, genuine saving faith simply by the, uh, where they're actually putting their trust and what's demonstrated in their lives. But many also are, and this is just what they've been taught. And so... Uh, we want to just look at this uh, and gain a little bit of clarity on it. Uh, now, Peter Ruckman is a main apologist for the King James only. Has anybody ever heard of that name? Okay. Key, Peter Ruckman is a key apologist for the King James only uh, camp. He's one of their greatest spokesmen. He's one of the, very outspoken. Uh, he's very vitriolic in his uh, speech in the way that he approaches this. Um, let me give you just a few, a few quotes uh, from him and then uh, by a couple other people. Now, the New King James Bible, like every English translation since 1884, had to compare itself with the original AV of 1611. The AV is the authorized version. Uh, for this is the standard that God, sets up, God set up whereby to judge all translations. No edition of the English Bible since 1880 could sell unless it first compared itself with the absolute standard of truth set up by the Holy Spirit. So you see where, where that's going, right? There is uh, that translation, even that edition, uh, is what every other standard, is what every other translation is measured by. In a, an article titled, New Age Bible Versions, an exhaustive document... This is like an old Puritan title, actually. 
Uh, New Age Bible versions and exhaustive documentation exposing the message men and manuscripts moving mankind to the Antichrist one world religion. That's great alliteration. It's just everything after that's terrible. But uh, so this is by someone named G.A. Ripplinger. Have anybody heard of that name, G.A. Ripplinger? Okay, another apologist there. Uh, just to give you an insight of the thinking. And now these are the most extreme side. There, there can be some more mild versions of this uh, within, uh, you know, the church. Uh, but th- so these are the more extreme, but it does show you where a great portion uh, of those who hold this uh, go. This is what they would be resting in, this, this kind of defense. Although this is just a personal uh, comment here. Daily during the six years needed for this investigation, the Lord miraculously brought the needed materials and resources, much like the ravens fed Elijah. So she's, uh, he's like a prophet. Each discovery was not the result of effort on my part, but of the directed hand of God. Uh, that's like a definition of an inspiration. First Peter, men moved along by the Holy Spirit. Uh, so much so that I hesitated even to put my name on the book. Consequently, I used G.A. Ripplinger, which signifies to me God and Ripplinger. God as author and Ripplinger as secretary. Um, that's a pretty amazing statement. I mean, that is essentially claiming divine inspiration for yourself equal to the level of an Old Testament prophet and one of the great Old Testament prophets. So according to him, uh, he stands in the line of God's great prophets to his people, giving them an inspired word. In other words, thus saith the Lord is uh, what he's uh, claiming for himself. I don't know. To the best of my knowledge, yes, just from when the book was published, but I don't know if he's still alive. So let's look at this a little bit. What are, what are some of their arguments? Two major text families uh, in textual criticism. We won't spend a lot of time on this, but just to mention it. Uh, is an Alexandrian. These are older texts, and we have fewer manuscripts. Now let me just say, textual criticism is a, is a very broad uh, science and art. So... We don't have the original autographs or the original manuscripts. Okay, this is just a big overview here. We, we don't have them. God, God did not keep those. And I think out of much divine wisdom he didn't. They would end up being worshipped like the ark did. And, and not only that, but the very divine wisdom in how the word was spread across then the Roman Empire uh, and preserved through these many uh, copies and manuscripts. So we have within... Uh, this big corpus of manuscripts, uh, some that come from different time periods, some that come from different social, uh, cultural, uh, political situations. In other words, some were forged uh, when the church was being persecuted. Uh, some were forged in a time of, or written in a time of ease and luxury and more time could be. So there were many factors. And so when you do textual criticism, you try to understand where is this manuscript from? When was it written? What is the quality of it? So every manuscript is not of an equal quality. But we have a massive amount of them. We have over 5,000 uh, manuscripts of the New Testament. The earliest of which dates back to right in the early 2nd century. It was a portion of John found, uh, discovered that was uh, in, over in Egypt, a small provincial village in Egypt, showing that even at such an early time, the scriptures were recognized and disseminating uh, among the Roman Empire. So 
so there's many manuscripts we have, and then they're grouped. And textual criticism is the science and the art uh, of how you come to what was the original. And it's, uh, so when you see in your Bible, this is a little aside here, but when you see in your Bible where it says, or could be, or some manuscripts don't keep this phrase, and if you have a reference Bible, not a study Bible, but a reference Bible, usually that will be in the columns on it. Uh, or, or when you hear maybe someone say, which uh, I would hold, that like John 8, the first few verses in The Woman in Adultery was not a part of the original manuscript. That kind of thing, but it's probably a true story and account that went in, that kind of thing shouldn't lessen our confidence in the Word of God. It should increase our confidence in the Word of God because what it says is that we know with such precision such exactness that even things as far as the tense of a word or an article that should or shouldn't be there, we can know know with precision. And that's even something recognized by secularists in terms of um, the process of textual criticism for Scripture. So that's just a big picture. Now for the KJV only, there's... they're going to make their argument uh, based on some of that uh, basic information. First, we have an Alexandrian family. These are older and fewer manuscripts. They were uh, copied in a time of persecution. Uh, Alexandria was a center of learning. As a matter of fact, does anybody know we have somebody mentioned in Scripture from Alexandria? Does anybody remember who that was and mentioned in Acts? Apollos. Apollos was from Alexandria. Uh, so we have that, that was a center of learning, uh, but when many of those manuscripts that we have from that area were, uh, were written in a time of persecution, excuse me, I'm just going to change one, one thing here, because uh, they uh, updated, um, they updated uh, this keynote, and as with most of their updates lately, they've made it worse rather than better. Um, Okay, anyway, we'll do this. So, it was a center of learning. Uh, Byzantine are newer and they're more abundant. Uh, It was written during a time of political peace and by professional uh, scribes. So, those are two basic families of manuscripts that we have. Uh, Alexandria was home to many of the Gnostic uh, heresies. Even Origen, who lived in Alexandria, was influenced by the philosophy of the time. Uh, Therefore, the Alexandrian text was corrupted by Gnostic heresies. Now, that's a uh, KJV-only argument. Okay, and there is some level of truth to that. There was Gnosticism there. Um, There were some some anti-Christian philosophies going around there, things that had uh, perverted uh, the gospel message. Uh, And Origen, we know, wasn't totally free from his times. uh, And he lived in Alexandria. The Greeks were meticulous scholars and guarded the integrity of the text. However, there was a strong Jewish population and center there for learning. As a matter of fact, we just mentioned one in Acts 18, 24, and 25. And so the point there is that there were those things going around. There were those uh, throughout the empire. That's why you have epistles written addressing that. First uh, John and others, at least what was, uh, uh, it wasn't full-blown Gnosticism, but it was an incipient form of it. And so here uh, you have in Acts 18.24, Apollo was a Jew from Alexandria who both knew the baptism of John and was mighty in the scriptures. He was mighty in the scriptures. Yes, there was some of that around, but there was also a strong uh, Jewish population and even a believing Jewish population who was uh, present there also. Uh, 
critical text of early fathers, meaning the early church fathers, was closer actually to the Alexandrian than it was to the Byzantine, the Byzantine text. And where there are obvious errors in the Byzantine, it moves toward an Alexandrian reading. What it's simply saying is this, is that just by normal textual criticism, the Alexandrian reading is consistently the better reading. Uh, It's older, which has the advantage of being nearer to the time it was actually written. The documents were actually written. Um, And though there are fewer manuscripts, they are genuinely more reliable. Where the abundance of manuscripts in the Byzantine, but you have a lot more unreliable text for a variety of reasons uh, that we won't go into here. But... uh, And so that last comment there is significant that when there is an obvious error in the Byzantine, uh, it moves towards an Alexandrian reading. Now, the KJV is based on a critical text that is known as the Textus Receptus. That is to say, the accepted critical text of the Greek New Testament. Um, The Textus Receptus was the standard text of the Reformation, and it was essentially the product of the Greek scholar Erasmus who applied rules of textual criticism. Okay? Now, that's important. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that just a bit more. But when we say that Erasmus applied rules of textual criticism, that is what those in the KJV-only camp uh, will not do. I mean, to them, it's, an, it's an KJV-only equals the word, or KJV equals the word of God only. That's it. Um, there is no textual criticism, which we'll show is a, not only uh, hypocritical, but is a completely inconsistent and historically uh, foolish position to take. But nonetheless, that's, that's how it's uh, taken. And again, what is a cover for that is the idea, and again, those who are the main apologists for it, is the idea that, look, that, this is like, not only is the KJV the inspired English text, but I, as the prophet of the KJV, am an inspired prophet. Uh, for the KJV text, equal and standing in the line, equal to and standing in the line of even that great Old Testament prophet Elijah. Uh, okay, let's let's look at this. Actually, let me go back here. Um, where are we here? Hold on. Um, Okay, Uh, let's see. All right, let's do this. So open your Bibles to 1 John 5, 7. Now the text was up here. Um, This was part of the screens that haven't been fixed yet. But open up to 1 John 5, uh, 7. Um, now it says in 1 John 5, 7 maybe somebody uh, could read actually read 5, 7 and 8 just for actually read 6 through 8 just somebody could read uh, 1 John 5 uh, 6 through 8 
Okay. Now, uh, do you, is my screen up there? No. Okay, let me put this back up. All right. Now, in Erasmus' first or second editions, uh, this, is not, this phrase is actually in 1 John 5, 7, is uh, not in Erasmus' first or second editions because it's not in any of the Greek text, but only in the Latin Vulgate. You have to understand, when Erasmus was putting this together, that was a major uh, advancement in the study of the Greek language and the Greek New Testament. Uh, he, put in, he was an excellent scholar. He was a Catholic scholar who uh, was not, uh, never became a part of the Reformation, although he also was one who was diligent in wanting to reform the Catholic Church in the sense of its morality. Uh, but he was, he was Catholic, but an excellent, an excellent scholar, and he actually produced the Greek New Testament text uh, that Luther was using and that many of the reformers uh, used uh, at that time. So God used him nonetheless. And so Erasmus, when he was putting together uh, this Greek text, uh, he was essentially... Uh, filling in lacuna or gaps with uh, the Latin Vulgate. And he changed his own versions of the Greek text uh, several times. And this is the text that Textus Receptus is the one that Erasmus uh, put together. Um, he was highly criticized for relying on Greek rather than the Latin, however, even his time. Uh, and he included it, this phrase, uh, in the third edition because of uh, a promise to an opponent. Here's an account of that. He was constrained to insert the phrase. Now, uh, when he presented with an Irish manuscript, the manuscript is highly suspect in that it is most probably was created in the house of the Grey Friars, whose provincial Henry Standish was an old enemy of Erasmus and whose intention was simply to refute Erasmus. So Erasmus uh, actually did not include it because it wasn't in the Greek text. He had this conflict with this, this uh, guy, and Erasmus essentially said, look, if you can produce a text that has this phrase, I'll include it. And so this guy, you know, conveniently comes up with this text that has this phrase... And it was highly spucked. It was obviously a forgery for a variety of reasons. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, Erasmus, true to his word, uh, ended up including it uh, in, uh, in his uh, Greek text. So, uh, anyway, the point, the point is being made here is simply this. Is that when, when this text was putting together, which is the foundation of the, the King James only, this Textus Receptus... Uh, there were a variety of other factors that were contributing. Some of these that were obviously wrong. Uh, Erasmus himself making uh, many changes. And as a matter of fact, I don't know if I have this in my notes. Um, yeah, this is going to go to something different. Uh, anyway, uh, I'll try to make sense out of my screens. It got all jumbled up somehow, and so I'll, I'll try to just bring it together in a way that makes sense. Uh, but anyway, when he was doing this, like at the end in Revelation, uh, there was a whole gap missing from the Greek text, which he simply supplied with the, the Latin uh, Vulgate. He translated it back, the Latin Vulgate version, he translated back into Greek and then present, put that as part of the textual receptus. When Erasmus was himself putting together that Greek text, he was using all of the evidence that was available at that time. In other words, he was uh, engaging in textual criticism. Uh, in other words, he was making corrections. He was comparing one text with the next. Where he didn't have a text, he relied on the Latin Vulgate. Uh, there were errors that were corrected along the way as it was uh, reprinted and so on. 
and so forth. The, the main idea in all of this uh, is simply to note that he was engaged in a process of textual criticism. Engaged in a process of textual criticism. Now let me pull up a few examples, uh, uh, other examples here. Now, uh, the, the point is, is that if in some uh, translations where that phrase uh, is not included, uh, if you, matter of fact, you might have... Uh, Uh, what was the, in, here I'll read the note that's in my Bible actually. A few late manuscripts add in heaven the Father and the Word, the Word and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that testify on earth, the Spirit, and then uh, so forth. Uh, by removing this verse, uh, the KJV only advocates uh, claim then that here's an, a, a denial of the Trinity. A denial of the Trinity. That this is an attempt to destroy the doctrine of the Trinity by these, uh, these satanically inspired uh, translators of the Bible who would um, change the Word of God because they would change the, the King James-only uh, text. And the point of that other is just simply to show that that's a matter of textual criticism. That, and the doctrine of the Trinity does not stand on one verse in First John. And that's an important point to remember that we'll mention later. Let me give you just a couple of other examples. Uh, let's see. Here we go. All right. Let me put this up here. In the KJV, um, and this is Mark 10, 21, it says, Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him, this is the rich young ruler, and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. The NIV, and in fact the New American Standard Version, has Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go, sell everything you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then come, follow me. Now, KJV-only advocates cite this as an attempt to remove the cost of discipleship in the corrupt New Age Bibles. In other words, look at what's happening. These who in these corrupted, Gnostic-influenced, New Age kind of Bibles are trying to lessen the call and the demand of Jesus and repentance. And here's example number one. Uh, look at what the NIV and the NSB... Now, we would not uh, be... Uh, you know, strong, strong uh, encouragers to make the NIV your main uh, text. But nonetheless, uh, they are part of this example here. And it's in the New American Standard Bible too. Uh, it is included, however, in Mark 8.34 in both the NIV and the NASB. However, it's not included in 10.21 because, there's not, because not in Greek manuscripts used as a textual basis. The phrase in the majority of manuscripts is, is in a majority of manuscripts, but lacking in oldest manuscripts and those translated into other languages. The same account, uh, the same account in Matthew nineteen twenty one, Luke eighteen twenty two. The phrase is not found in any of the manuscripts, nor in the KJV either. Therefore, an example of scribal harmonization and KJV inconsistencies in argumentation. Okay, what's maybe summarized? What is all that saying? Is this that? Uh, the phrase is not there in Mark 10.21 because the best manuscripts 
uh, don't have that phrase in Mark 10, 10, 21. However, that phrase is in other places. We have the synoptic gospels, which we'll talk about again this morning in a particular case, actually. And we notice as we go through where the gospel writers are recording the same event from different perspectives and emphasizing different things. And sometimes they leave phrases out that another includes. Sometimes they leave out a whole section that another includes. Again, we'll look at that this morning just briefly uh, in the message in uh, Matthew chapter 20. Uh, so th- this is uh, inconsistent even in their own case, which is mentioned example in, uh, even in the KJV. Uh, they don't have this in Luke 18.22 and 19.21 uh, because it's not there in the manuscripts. Uh, the point is, is these, these are really kind of foolish arguments. This is what this is meant to show, is that it's totally inconsistent. Uh, it's, a, it's a foolish argument in the sense that uh, also, if it's in other places in the Bible, you compare the accounts. So if in one, in Mark 10.21, in the New American Standard, it's not there, uh, but it is there in the other accounts, uh, how in the world could you claim some kind of attempt uh, to cover up the cost of discipleship. And also as if the whole cost of discipleship were uh, encompassed and found its whole expression in that one uh, verse. Here's another example. Uh, they say, it's alright to corrupt the word of God as long as you don't peddle it. Observe how no, one, no edition of the King James Bible reads with the Falwell Nelson in 2 Corinthians 2.17... For we are not as many peddling the word of God, but as, as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. Why don't you go ahead and look at that verse here. We'll just make a few other comments about it. This could go on ad agnosium. This is just to make a few examples here. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 2.17. So Paul is making an argument here about those who are corrupting the word of God. Those who are taking the word of God and rather than using uh, their platform as supposed supposed or self-professed ministers of the gospel to advance the gospel, they're using it for selfish means and they are compromising uh, the message. So that's what Paul is addressing. Uh, Paul talks about his own life as being an aroma of death to death and life to life because everywhere he goes he gives the aroma of Christ. It is both his life and his message is a representation of Christ no matter where he goes. And then he says in verse 17, For we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from, and this is a New American Standard, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Now, this is a matter of translation. This is where translation comes into view. So let's, let's look at a few things. These are notes up here. I, up here. Um, the term... Uh, do we have any Greek students in here? Who's, oh, nobody. Okay. Um, the term there is kape luontes. Kape luontes. Uh, it literally means a peddler, a merchant, one who sells things often with a negative uh, connotation. So... It, it, when it's used, it often has an idea of someone who is uh, uh, a seller of goods who would be open or sometimes known for their dishonest practices in selling. Okay, maybe like if this is stereotypical. I'm sorry if anybody is you know has loved ones that are you know sell used cars, but you know sometimes it'd be that kind of idea, right? Uh, that here's someone who they have. Un, it's typically used in someone who has unsavory practices in their. Uh, attempt to uh, sell their wares. Uh, 
to go through that. Now, most lexicons uh, define it as pedals for profit, pedals deceitfully, or trades in the word of God. And in fact, in this case, the KJV is actually an inferior translation at this point, masking the full range and intent of the term. Let's go back here. Um, It's all right to corrupt the word of God as long as you don't uh, peddle it. it. And it has corrupt in the terms, uh, in the language of uh, the KJV. So, again, did I go, how far? I am so sorry for this. I am going to now be more motivated to uh, fix this. Um, the point is, is that it's a silly argument. Really, it's just shown the silliness of these kind of arguments. Uh, yeah, there we go. Uh, the fact is, is that Paul is addressing something here about those who are corrupting it by, uh, with their false motives and compromising the message of the gospel as it's being spread uh, around. And, and, no, and so he's actually confronting uh, these false purveyors of the word of God. Uh, here's another one. In re- here. You know what? Let me do this. Hold on one sec. Let me do this. And, and again, apologize for this. There's another version of this that has some of these things on here. Okay. This is another one. Uh, this is an older version of this lesson, but it, <sighs> Well, go ahead and look at Isaiah 19. You can look at it in your own Bible. Uh, Isaiah 9:10 or 19:10. No, look in your Bibles. I'm sorry. I'm just going to I'm just going to tell you this uh, PowerPoint is not not working and it's making Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, there, there is the New King James Version. There's the Standard King James and then the Authorized uh, King James. So... Um, in, in my understanding, uh, understanding of it, there are some different versions. The authorized King James uh, Version, the King James Authorized Version, 1611. That's the one that they're defending, particularly. So they would even see, so for example, like the New King James Version as corrupt, as compromising. Authorized. S, standard. Uh, let's look at this. And again, I'm sorry I can't pull this up on my screen, but we're wasting too much time on that. Uh, in Isaiah 19.10, somebody read Isaiah 19.10. Uh, okay. Now, in Isaiah 19.10, all Hebrew, Hebrew manuscripts read soul, whereas the KJV actually reads... Do you, what do you have? Do you have... What does it say... Well, yeah, see, tell me what it says. Yeah, Isaiah 
Well, if you can't find it, let me go ahead and... Nineteen ten, Isaiah nineteen ten. Uh huh. Okay, so now in the New American Standard, for example, uh, the the translation of the term because of better manuscript evidence is soul, whereas the KJV reads. Fish, uh, the following uh, following the Roman Catholic Latin Vulgate. Now, this is actually a quote from uh, James White. If you wanted a book on this, it's just like the standard response to it. It's James White, the KJV only controversy. Uh, that would be enough to read. Uh, he just spends however many pages chronicling this stuff. Uh, do you suppose this is his question? Do you suppose this is a New Age tack on the spiritual nature of man, attempting to lower him to a mere animal? Well, we wouldn't say that. The point is, is right, you don't want to reverse that argument. It would be foolish. No, this is, a, this is an issue of textual criticism. Uh, that does not change the message of the Bible about uh, men. Uh, another example, Gen- Genesis 36, 24. Just hop around to some of these and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. Genesis 36, 24. Genesis 36, 24. Sir, what is it? Go ahead, if you have it. In Genesis 36, right? Okay. Uh, again, I'm going to give a quote here from James White. In Genesis 36:24, all Hebrew manuscripts and other ancient authorities read found water. Okay, the, the KJV, whereas the KJV reads found mules, following a medieval Jewish commentator. Okay, do you suppose this is a new age tack on the word of God for which water is a symbol, replacing it with mules? No. Okay, again, this is just to show the ludicrousy of some of these arguments. Um, let me give you one final one here. The use of age. The charge, modern, mo- the charge of a KJV-only uh, advocate is that modern versions often use the term age in place of world, thus su- supporting a new age spirituality. Okay? It uses age rather than world, often some of the modern translators. Uh, the fact is there's two Greek terms that can be translated world, and they have different meanings. Does anybody know what they are? Okay, one is cosmos. And what is Ion? Okay, cosmos speaks of just the universe, the planets, the stars, and how all of this goes uh, together. Uh, it can speak of the inhabitants. It can speak of a variety of things, but have to do here with this physical world. Age, or Ion, can be translated as age, but, uh, excuse me, as world, but has a more common meaning of age. Let me give you one example of that. Uh, I don't think I have it here, but uh, let me just give you one example of that in Hebrews 1. Just really quick. Um, Hebrews chapter 1. Okay, in verse 2. 
in these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Uh, the term there, world, is actually Ion. It's not cosmos. It's not cosmos. It actually would be a better translation uh, to speak of the ages. And it's, only, it's also a more powerful statement. Because what he's saying there is he didn't just create the physical universe, but that in Christ, everything else that he's going to mention, uh, 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 that he's going to mention later, or that he mentions even in that, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the ages, uh, is a much more comprehensive idea than just the physical world. It means that all of these things that God created from creation to all of the epics of men, to even the eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth, are all summed up in the creative work and the person of Christ and all going to be summed up under His dominion, the Lordship of Christ. That's Ephesians 1, the summing up of all things in Christ. It's a much more powerful word. Now, uh, a New Age person would look at that then if you translated that age and say, look at how you're perverting it, you're bringing a New Age Gnosticism into the Bible and you're corrupting it. And it's actually just rather, rather foolish. Age is actually a more accurate and clear translation that maintains distinction. Uh, we have a couple of minutes, so let me just give you a couple other advan- uh, uh, examples of that. Uh, Matthew twelve thirty-two. something that I have down here. Uh, Jesse, pull up what the KJV has there on Matthew twelve thirty two. Yeah, well, because they're following the Vulgate part of it. Uh-huh, Matthew twelve twenty two. There's several examples here. Uh, Again, those would be an attack from a KJV only to say, look at the corruption of the Word of God, in which our argument back would be, that's what the Word is. It's more accurately age, and age is actually a much more comprehensive term that goes beyond just physical world to speak of all of those aspects that are characteristic of a fallen world. Uh, All of the the wickedness of men and all of those... uh, All of those things that mark this as being a world that is uh, fallen. And when you speak of the age to come, not only of this world to come, but that age to come where men's eternal states are forever determined, those under eternal destruction and those uh, under in eternal life uh, with God. Okay, as I said, these could go on and on and on and on. Uh, Let me wrap it up with uh, just a few comments here. And we'll put these back up. Okay. What would be our response then to all of this? Well, the KJV is an excellent translation. It's a, it's a wonderful translation. And God has used that powerfully in the life of the church. This is not an attack against the KJV translation. This is an attack against those who foolishly and cultishly uh, try to make and elevate the King James translation to something other than what God intended it to be. Um, that's, that's the issue. Uh, who are divisive and attacking 
and who are deceptive in their arguments and inconsistency and hold many in, in what is no more than uh, would be called a Christian cult is essentially what it is. For those on the extreme version here, now I'm not talking about everyone. Some are just kind of caught up in that who are genuine believers. And so we, we're talking about here those who are defending it, those who are espousing this view and who are militantly so, uh, is cultish. Uh, their hope is not in Christ. Their hope is in a translation of the Bible. It's really no different than many of the Jews whose hope was not in their coming Messiah. It was in their Jewishness and in their religion and in their traditions. Yeah. Right. And so that's the formula. The King James only equals the Word of God. Some of them would say they're not saved. And the more extreme of that actually would say if you weren't saved under the King James Version, your, your Christianity is not valid, that you're, you're not. So, and so they would say, I'm just on the extreme version, as you know, uh, they would say that those people are there, you've got to get the King James Version to them or they can't be saved. Right. They would say that. And that's exactly true. And that, that would be the paganism of it. And, uh, just those things. So we've already said this. It's a beautiful translation. It's set a high standard for translation. And even when we look at the ones today, New American Standard, ESV, and others that we would support, uh, we'd say it's in that line of King James. We, it's, in the same, it's in the same translation uh, trajectory as the King James Version. So, and many of us, or not so much me really, but many people were raised on it. So they've memorized all their verses you know, from the King James. Or they just like the beauty of it. And it's like, great, you know, use it. It's a great translation. Uh, more could be said. but uh, We want to remember that the textus receptus developed through a process of textual criticism, which the modern key, uh, King James only uh, apologist would uh, reject. KJV has undergone numerous editing reprints and corrective revisions. As a matter of fact, one of those revisions, it's known as the Wicked Bible. Y'all ever heard of that, the Wicked Bible? It was one translated, you, you heard of it, Paul? Okay, where they uh, took the not was not as accidentally not printed. And so in the Ten Commandments, it was you shall murder, you shall covet, you shall commit adultery. <laughs> and so it, was, it became known historically as the Wicked Bible. Uh, 
anyway, so the KJV does, always, does not always make the best translation decisions. And those few examples were just uh, to show that. There's many more. Uh, it doesn't always make the best translation decisions. Uh, and a matter of fact, in some cases, it often doesn't make the best translation de- decision. And they're inconsistent with their own arguments because the arguments that they would use work right back against them, which they conveniently ignore. And we saw an example of that, too, about the take up your cross. Uh, examples. So the point is, is that it's nonsense. That's really the point. This is, this, is a, this is a childish, foolish kind of position to take. It doesn't, it doesn't match up with reality or their own uh, arguments are internally inconsistent. Uh, and the KJV contains known textual variants that are not the most likely. Um, lessons learned. Christians should be aware of the general categories and issues concerning the text of the Bible. We should be somewhat literate on it. It doesn't mean you to some degree, we should all do that. And we've taken time here twice. We've taught through and spent time on textual criticism, that whole process, and given lots of examples of it, uh, and so on and so forth. So we might be, we should do that again. Uh, this is actually the end of one part of a whole series of the Doctrine of Scripture. Uh, those who choose to cause division and reject sound and reasoned discussion are to be avoided. In other words, don't answer a fool according to their folly. If somebody's not willing to listen to reason, uh, you don't, don't get in an argument. It's not, you just go, you know what, we're not going to agree on that. Done that, we're, we're obviously not going to come, so, you know, let's just drop it off. Yeah, let's just leave it right there. Uh, if somebody is not going to listen, if somebody you can reason with them, you reason with them, you talk about these things. But if not, just drop it. Uh, that's uh, those whose talk spreads like gangrenes, you know, uh, he gives them the pastorals, they're... Uh, want to have these foolish controversies about these, you know, wives' tales and other things. Just, we avoid that altogether. So d- we don't argue. We're not, we must not be argumentative. And we as Christians must learn to discern those issues to be discussed and those to divide and separate it over. There are things to divide over. The gospel, you divide over. Uh, we don't divide over things like a translation. Okay? That's, that's not where we divide. We have to, to have maturity and wisdom to know where do we join hands, where do we not... Where do we mark our separation, but yet uh, also exalt in our unity? Presbyterian covenantism and dispensation would be one. Where we mark our unity as brothers in Christ with love and engage in many things together. But we also make a distinction, too, is what we would hold dear as far as uh, believers' baptism and an understanding of the covenants as compared to them. Uh, I think the great example of that is recently a debate I listened to between MacArthur and Sproul, who debated baptism. You can find it on YouTube. Great example of firmly arguing your position in an atmosphere of mutual respect and love for a brother in Christ. Uh, It's just, and they love each other and exalt each other, and yet they don't compromise at all about their position. There it is. It's right out there. But yet in a, in a spirit of brotherly unity. It's a great example. I'd encourage you, if for no other reason, just for that reason to listen to it uh, would be encouraging. And the last one, we as Christians must be discerning but not overly censorious, which can be a mark of pride. All right? Our goal as Christians is not to go out and find why everybody else is wrong. Okay? Uh, there's obviously sermons could be preached on all of those. But um, we should be marked if by nothing else, if somebody saw us discussing it with a KJV-only person, they should, if they don't even listen to the arguments, be able to see that there is a difference in how they're discussing it with patience, with kindness, with reason, as opposed to some, what is usually typical on the other side, which is anger, attacking, uh, venom. And they should say, well, I see a difference at least in how they're approaching it. And we would want that to be said of us. And it can be difficult you know, sometimes it takes a spirit of grace to, to, to respond that way. 
Let me pray first. Uh, Father, thank you for your goodness to give us your word. May we not only argue and defend such issues as uh, the text and so on, but may we love it and live and breathe and depend on your word and your glorious revelation of yourself and of Christ that is in it. Uh, May it be a strength and our encouragement. May we delight in your word because we delight in Christ. And may it be sweeter to us than honey from a honeycomb. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.